following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Bible, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll also have it on the screen if you want to follow along. Um, today we'll be looking at some of the feasts and celebrations. Um, Again, we're not going to read the whole chapter, um, but we will highlight it as we go. And um, so we'll be looking uh, in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, We'll be reading. We'll look at the whole chapter, but we'll read verses 1 through 14. The Lord spoke uh, to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which uh, you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And a drink offering with it shall be wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Um, we want to look today at how, how are we to worship God, the way that we worship God. And if I were to ask you right now, it's tempting to get a mic and go around and put you on the spot and say, how do you worship God? What would you answer if I put you on the spot? <laughs> um, Just think of in your own mind right now, just formulate that answer. Don't say it out loud, but how do you worship God? Uh, Maybe you would say, I go to church and join with the body. Maybe you'd say, I have my my private quiet time. Maybe you'd say, I sing worship songs uh, with with my phone. Um, um, How would you answer that? Well, it's an important question. And uh, it's important because worship is the highest calling of a follower of Christ. The most important thing you do or I do in God's estimation is to worship Him. 
That's why we were created, and that's the goal and focus of our life. So it's important that we know how to do that, and I'm sure we all have many ways that we, uh, we do seek to worship God. Um, I think, it, it, especially among a group of a largely full-time Christian workers, um, it's very easy to make the mistake of making ministry or our, 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 our work for God more important than our worship. And I've had several conversations recently about our mission strategies, our methods, and what we're supposed to be about. Um, and they're good things. Ministry is important. And certainly making disciples and fulfilling the Great Commission is something we are called to do as God's people. And we should be deeply engaged in, in, in ministry, uh, whether it's vocational or not. Right? It should be proclaiming uh, God, making people, helping people come to know him is super important. Likewise, good doctrine and right teaching is vitally important. And I try every Sunday to teach good theology. And if I mess up, people are always, you know, pretty willing to come tell me where I, you know, I've had bad theology. Good doctrine is right. And we should be teaching the word. Super important, right? And uh, more recently, the church has kind of become aware, and, and there's a lot of talk nowadays about the church being community. And community is important. You know, we are a part of the body of Christ and how we live together as the body of Christ, as God's people. Super important. But all of those things will be way off track if worship is not more important than those things, right? If those things take the place of worship or uh, we get so focused on those things that we lose sight of our high calling of worship, we are in trouble. Um, and, and the reality is that none of those things can be done rightly if worship is not the most important thing in our life, and in fact, if those things are not done in a way to worship God and to bring about the exalting of his name. And so that's one of the reasons the book of Leviticus is important. Leviticus essentially is a worship manual. It's an instruction on how the, the people of Israel to worship God. And it started off with uh, what kind of sacrifices they were to offer. So the first about ten chapters talks a lot about the kinds of offerings they were to bring as part of their worship as they uh, brought these and the purposes of them to bring atonement and cleansing and forgiveness and fellowship with God to open up the way so that they could worship him, right? Uh, Then the next section talks a lot about uh, having a holy life or lifestyle. And they they were to arrange their life so that they avoided that which is unclean and where there were provisions to... Uh, to cleanse, cleanse themselves if they contacted, came in contact with the unclean. But beyond that, they were also to have high moral values and character. How they lived made it, it was important. And that, of course, is all part of their worship, as it is with us. Right? Our lifestyle should be one that reflects the holiness of God, and that's worship. Um, and ultimately, their lifestyle and their, their moral values were summarized by the great commandments, the love Uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How we treat each other is part of our holy uh, life, and it is worship. Uh, And then uh, last week we looked at, uh, they they had a holy priesthood. There was a group of set-apart people who uh, especially reflected uh, this holy nature of God as they were intermediaries on the behalf of the people. But then we come to chapter 23, and what we see here essentially is a holy calendar. A holy calendar. And uh, this chapter lays out their calendar year 
and how the holiness of God and worship of God is to be center of their calendar. And uh, it really, uh, in many ways, pulls together all of these pieces because uh, the, the sacrifices and the cleansing and, and, and the priesthood and all that uh, boils down to events. And it was events that took place on specific days of the calendar year. And so uh, we get in this chapter, uh, their, their calendar, their, their worship calendar of when they were to be worshiping when they were to be coming to present these specific offerings and gifts and how that was to work. Uh, and, and so in the very marking of time, uh, we see uh, that, that worship is to be the center, right? They were to build their schedules on their calendar around the central theme of worship. And that's how it was to work for them. Uh, so it was marked off in two ways. One, every seventh day was a Sabbath, and we'll see that. Every seven days they were to be gathering for worship. But also it was, gathered, it was centered around the seasons of, of their, their natural life. And for people in those days, their calendar or the seasons of their life uh, were kind of like us. You've got the burning season and the <laughs> rainy season. No, actually they had different seasons, right? Uh, their seasons revolved around planting and harvesting. And uh, in, in Israel there were actually three main harvest times. Uh, and we'll see that. So, uh, so their calendar of worship was connected with these main harvest festivals. And it was a way that God basically redeemed and took over what would have been uh, true of, of people in that day revolving around their calendar. And God inserted worship into those key times and events. Um, and it pulls together to see really how they were to worship. So when we look at the structure, I think I have a slide. Here's, here's basically the structure of this chapter. First four verses look at the Sabbath and the importance of the Sabbath. Then uh, verses 5 through 22 looks at the spring festivals, uh, which would have included the barley harvest in March and April, uh, where they would have celebrated Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, back-to-back um, festivals. Uh, then in May or June, they would have uh, celebrated the Feast of Weeks, which we more identify by its Greek name, Pentecost. Right? Uh, and that was around the, uh, the, the big wheat harvest, and then finally, uh, there were the fall festivals, uh, also broke up into a pair, two sets. Uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, which would have been in September and October, and this was around the grape and olive harvest. So you had the Day of Atonement and then, and then the Feast of Booths. Uh, so, of course, for us as uh, New Testament followers of Jesus, uh, we, we don't actually celebrate directly any of these. So what does this have to do with us? Well, let me just uh, start there. Um, when we think about how we are to worship God, uh, we may not follow the same festivals and practices that they did. Uh, however, it's interesting that uh, our three main Christian holidays, or three, three of, not our three, three main, but three of our main holidays are based on Old Testament festivals. Right? So what's some of our main, some of, some of our main Christian holidays? You don't know any? <laughs> Help me out. Well, I can't hear, of course, but it's uh, my other problem. Uh, uh, Good Friday would be a, a key one. Good Friday uh, is built around Passover. Easter 
which uh, the church would separate those as two separate holidays, although we kind of merge them into one, unfortunately. But Easter, the day of Jesus' resurrection, connects with the, the feast of um, first fruits, which is not up there. It's part of actually unleavened bread. But uh, feast of the first fruits connects with Easter. And of course, uh, Pentecost is the day that we celebrate, or as it turns out, the day we don't celebrate, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so, so this calendar has in some ways been carried over into the New Testament. Um, and of course, uh, certainly Sabbath has. Uh, it's moved from Saturday to Sunday. Uh, but the principle of what Sabbath is is still held onto and, and celebrated by the church. Um, so we'll see that. So the festivals have changed. Um, and perhaps some of the customs have changed. But the, the great meaning and purpose and what they teach us about worship hasn't changed. And so we want to look at that this morning. And, and I think there are three principles we can, we can pull out of all of these festivals that help us uh, focus more intently on how we worship God. Uh, and so we're not going to look through the, the festivals one by one. I'll kind of pull pieces of them out here and there. Uh, they're covered already quite a bit in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers uh, so, and they're just kind of stated here in terms of bullet points on the calendar, um, circling dates on the calendar, if you will. So let me just pull out some principles that I think we can uh, apply to how we celebrate and worship God. And the first principle is simply this, the principle of making time. Making time. Uh, I love that this chapter is about before they schedule anything else, right? before anything else gets put on their Google Calendar or their Daytimer, right? the first thing that goes in there are these worship events. Right? And, um, and there's, a, there's a principle in here, of the, it's the, the principle I would call of making time, but also the principle of first fruits. Right? The principle of first fruits. And we see this in, in, in verse 9. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, and of course, this isn't relevant yet, because right now they're still wandering in the wilderness, and they're not planting crops. We haven't got there yet. But when you get to the promised land, and you start planting crops, and you start reaping your harvest, then you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And I like this, verse 14. I like this. And you shall uh, eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. Because this is what this first this is what first fruits means. First fruits first I can't say that. First fruits means that during the harvest you go out and you start cutting and it was it was the barley harvest in March, and you go out and you would cut your first uh, barley grain and you would wrap it into a sheaf and the very first thing you would do is you would take and set aside a, sh- a sheaf, a bundle and you would take it to the temple as a wave offering before God. But this, this is what it meant to be first. It was so important that you could not eat bread or grain in any form until you first gave that to God. God gets the first before you eat one single kernel of grain. Right? So I can just imagine how this worked. I mean, I would have a lot of incentive at this point to, like, get that sheaf to God because, like, no breakfast until I get this done. 
And the principle here is that God is worthy and deserving of the first and the best. In other words, uh, God is to be a priority. And it was to be seen in the unfolding of their calendar, right? Before they penciled in anything else, they penciled in these events. And everything in their, else in their life revolved around those days and those events, right? Um, Worship will be the most important thing in your life only if you build your schedule around it. Right? Do you schedule times for worship? It just amazes me. You know, when I hear people, Christians, full-time Christian workers, people who are supposed to be followers of Jesus, talking about how they arrange their schedule and what they do and do not have time for. Right? I'm so busy. I really don't have time to spend time daily praying. Right? Well, God's not very. I, God's not that important to you, then, right? And this is the way it works. When, 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 when your time with God is the first thing in your schedule, and everything else has to shift around that, that means it's the most important, right? Uh, too often we try to squeeze worship into a schedule that's packed full, and we feel like we're making great sacrifices for God when we make time to go to church for two hours, right? Or to pray for ten minutes. Well, if God's really a priority and if worship is really a priority and you build your schedule around that, right, then you squeeze everything else into the time between worship. And that's, what he, that's what he's saying here. That's what he means. Um, when Denise was pregnant with our first daughter, Kashara, who's here, um, way back a long, long time ago, um, uh, she... It came this day after nine months when Denise says, I think, I think it's time, right? It's time to go have this baby. And she was feeling all the symptoms and signs. And um, honestly, it was not a very good time for me. It was not convenient because it was right at the at finals in college, right? But, you know, I didn't say, you know, dear, this is just really not a good time for me. Uh, can we do this like next week? Like finals, I'm almost done. Like, let's just wait, right? No. It's like, no, you drop everything. That becomes the most important thing, right? I, I, I did fail my finals, right? But that doesn't matter. Life went on. Yay. Um, and I mean, we got Kushara out of the deal. So <laughs> praise God, right? Well, of course, of course um, most things in life don't come on us like that. A birth, you know, you can't plan or schedule. But most things do, right? Most things in life we control. And the thing is, if we want, if we, if, if worship is really important to us, right, that's the first thing we schedule. And it doesn't move, right? It doesn't shift, it doesn't change, because God is, is that important. Uh, so, so we see that picture, we see that uh, in, in all the events, but um, both with these seasons, but also with the, these daily events. And, and certainly they, they were to schedule these Sabbaths. So every seven days, uh, they were to set aside a day for worship. Um, and, and, and in fact, throughout this passage, there are tons of sevens. So uh, the Sabbath principle is there on the seventh day of the week. The, for them, would have been a Saturday when they set aside for, for, for worship, uh, for Sabbath rest. But uh, all, all of the uh, festivals actually connect with this number seven in kind of crazy ways. Uh, Passover is on the 14th day of the first month, so a multiple of seven. Two sets of seven 
end of the month, you celebrate Passover. Immediately following Passover, the very next day, began a seven-day festival called uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the Feast of Unleavened Bread ended, you counted seven weeks of seven. Right? So 49 days, and then the next day after that, which, by the way, would have been a Sunday. It's interesting, a lot of these festivals actually point to um, us worshiping on Sunday, and this is one of them. So seven weeks of seven, they have uh, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, right? Um, then you fast forward a few months, and in the seventh month, in the seventh month, on the very first day, they were to blow a trumpet and have a Sabbath, right? Then on the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. And then a few days later, on the fifteenth of the seventh month, was the celebration of Boots, which was also a seven-day celebration, so through all of these is this principle of Sabbath, setting aside a time of, of rest and of no work and of a day devoted to worship. And another distinctive category of the Sabbath is that they were to do no work. It was a day of rest. He says in verse 3, Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. This is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Um, I just want to highlight here real quickly, I'll, I'll talk about Sabbath and rest. But I think it's important to notice the first part of that verse. He says, six days shall work be done. Six days shall work be done. Um, you know, I don't want to pick on people, but I think we've gotten kind of soft in modern times. And we feel like if we're if we're asked to work like seven days or six days, it's like some form of, of you know, human rights violation and torture, right? Um, honestly, for most of history, people worked a lot of times seven days a week, right? And then certainly in, 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 the Israeli, in this time, ancient time, it was common for people to work day in and day out. Um, uh, the, the goal of this rest is not that God wants us not to work too much, God likes it when you work a lot. And, and um, uh, sometimes people are worried about burnout, right? But actually, burnout is, is more of a condition of how you think about things, not what you actually do. And the reality is, Jesus worked hard. P- uh, Paul worked hard. He's bivocational, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with, with work. So just, to, just so you know, because like a lot of you, I know you, you work 900 hours a week, right? And you are martyrs for Jesus. And we just give you a hand because you guys are amazing. And I know you're hardworking people. Uh, but here's, here's on average. Okay, this is kind of fun. How many think your country is the hardest working country in the world? Anybody? Well, you might be surprised. Get this. The, the longest average working day is guess what country? Mexico. Who knew? Ten, over 10 hours a day they work on average. Second, Japan, nine plus hours. Third, Canada. Let's hear it for those Canadians. Yay. Who knew? Third in the world for working the longest. I just like Canadians even more now. Um, down the list of ways is the United States, eight, eight plus hours. But get this. You know who's behind the United States? Korea. Who would have guessed that? Koreans actually work a little less than eight hours a day. Americans work a little more. Who would have, who would have thought that? Uh, then, if you're from the UK, seven and a half hours. Man, you guys are just bums. I mean, seven and a half hours. What is with that? And even worse, the Netherlands. Where's Reen? Where is he? The Netherlands, 7.4 hours. Wow. 
Well, so we should work. All that to have fun, just to say, we should work, right? God calls us to work, but we are to set aside one day in seven. So it doesn't matter if you're those lazy people from the Netherlands who only work 7.4, or those all-out Mexicans working 10 plus, right? It doesn't matter. The point is, one day a week, you stop work, right? It's dedicated, the whole day completely is dedicated to rest and to worship, right, to worship. And we'll see that in a minute. Um, It wasn't just a day off. It wasn't just a day to chill and watch TV. It was a day that was to be set aside for worship, right, for worship. That was its function and purpose, ultimately. Now, I did give them rest, and that was important. There are health benefits, we know, that come with that. But that was not the primary goal or purpose, The primary goal of Sabbath was worship, a day set apart and devoted to worship God. And we'll see in a minute how that works. Um, And it is a rest. It's called a solemn rest. Uh, And and throughout Scripture, uh, rest is not simply uh, taking a long nap, although that's that's good. I mean, that kind of physical restoration is important and, and, and advised and oftentimes necessary. But in Scripture, rest has a, also a bigger meaning. Um, and it really has the idea of acknowledging that God's in control. Right? That's really what rest comes down to. Uh, it means that uh, I, can, I can stop working and the world will keep going. Okay, let me say that again. I can stop working, but the world will still run. Okay, some people don't, don't believe that. They're convinced that they stop working, the whole world will stop spinning, right? Because they are so vital to everything. And this is me, okay? So I'm confessing here that if I stop working, everything will just fall apart. But the principle of Sabbath rest is that that God's in control and that God's actually the one who's keeping things going, not me. And so I can stop, I can take a break, and guess what? The world keeps turning and things keep happening. And so rest, rest, the kind of rest he's talking about here is trusting in God's sovereign power over all things and acknowledging that he's the one who takes care of us and provides and sustains us. That it's not up to my work, it's ultimately up to God's working. Um, and we see that ultimately in salvation, right? God's provided in Jesus the means of salvation. It's not by my work and effort that I save myself. Uh, and I, I come into God's rest when I receive the work of Jesus to uh, save me and to cleanse and restore me and make me into who he calls me to be. Um, so to set aside one full day as a way of acknowledging uh, that God's in control and he's powerful and we, we are dependent on him. And that, that's what Sabbath rest is about. And so to set aside these times, whether it's the, the one day in seven or these other seasons, some of them a week long. Some of them, and we'll talk about the Feast of Boots, seven-day vacation. I mean, I like this one. Camping out, actually, even better. Uh, we'll get there. Second principle. Um, worship involves holy assemblies. Holy assemblies. Holy gatherings. Uh, verse 1, again, let me read. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts, the set times of the the Lord, that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Okay, proclaim as holy convocations. What in the world is that? I'll explain in a minute. 
Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. That phrase, proclaim as holy convocations, is a bit of a play on words. And the word proclaim and the word convocation come from the same root word in Hebrew. So he's kind of saying, proclaim a holy proclamation. Well, what were they proclaiming here? What is it they were going out there and yelling on the streets? Well, what they're proclaiming is, is the calling of an assembly. Right back then, they didn't have email, they didn't have telephones, and, and so, so they would go out and they would, they would call the assembly. And they go out into the camp and they say, we're gathering for worship. Right? They would proclaim that. Today is a day of Sabbath. Today is a day we come worship God, come to the temple and worship. And so these holy convocations were the meetings or the assemblies that resulted of that proclamation, of that telling, of that inviting people to gather together. And we kind of, we we miss this often because we don't understand some of these Hebrew words. And oftentimes we picture Sabbath as kind of a day off where they would just go up and and stay at home and and, and take a long nap and uh, not really do anything. But at the core of it, at the very core of what these were called, was an assembling and a gathering together. And they did that. The people of Israel would gather at the temple on those Sabbaths and on the festivals and on the holidays. They were holy gatherings when they gathered together as an entire people to celebrate and worship God. I wiped that out last week, so I'll try to be careful. Um, okay, it, was a, it was a gathering time. First at the tent, the tabernacle, uh, then later at the temple. But as the nation grew and spread, uh, it wasn't practical for them to all come to the temple, so they started building synagogues. Right? And so they, they built places of meeting because that was integral and central to worship. Worship was not a solo event. It was something you did uh, in community. Um, and of course... Uh, in modern times, we think about our spiritual disciplines, disciplines like silence and solitude, of getting away. And those are vital and important disciplines of the spiritual life. But equally important are the disciplines of gathering and of corporate worship and joining together to celebrate God. Uh, and in fact, the, the Greek word for church is what, you Greek scholars? Ekklesia, right? What does ekklesia mean? Assembly. Assembly, right? They just took this idea of Sabbath and they used the Greek word. We're calling a gathering, a holy gathering. Um, so, so we gather, we meet together as the church. It's an important part of our worship. Not only that we set aside a day, but we gather together. Um, the church may be universal, but may be universal. But our gathering as God's people in a local place, a specific church is important to worship. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is simply this, the more the merrier. <laughs> Good biblical principle. I think it's in the Bible somewhere. The more the merrier. Uh, so so here's, the, here's the verse. They just use different words. Verse 6. Uh, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Uh, verse 17. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. So this is a, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, and it's around the, the, the wheat harvest. Um, 
So you should present this bread, you should present with it. Now, but notice, so, so the, the goal of this, ceremony, this celebration is they harvest the wheat, and much like the barley, first thing they do is they bake up some bread, some nice, picture this, some nice, yummy, big loaves of bread. It's the only time in, the, in, in all of Leviticus that they bring leavened bread as an offering. Right? So it's big, nice, and you can just smell it. You guys smell the... Smell the bread baking, some butter on that. Ooh, good, right? And they bring this, and it's a it's a it's a, a grain offering, uh, representing their harvest, the first fruits of their harvest again. But note what else they offer with it. Okay, so in addition to the the two loaves of bread, you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings a food offering with pleasing aroma. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. Okay, I don't know if you lost track, counted all that, but there's a bunch of animals that they also were to offer. Some as burnt offerings, but some as peace offerings. And what was a peace offering? Well, a peace offering was what they got to eat themselves. But there were rules about it. Uh, when you brought a peace offering, so you bring a, a, a ram and you offer it, you had to eat the whole thing right then, right? The whole thing, right? So um, this is not something you do privately. I got my lamb, got 100 pounds of, of good mutton here. I'm going to eat till that baby's gone, right? I don't care how good your appetite is. Nobody eats a whole lamb all by themselves, right? It's just not possible. And they're, they're offering bulls and goats and all this, all this food. They're eating it, right? What was the point? Well, the point was, you don't do this by yourself, right? This is like our, our church pork roast, you know? We, we get two, two big pigs. We, we all eat it together because it's a lot of pork, right? You can't do this by yourself. And, and God designed it so that they join together celebrating in community the goodness of God, right? Uh, they couldn't take it home. They had to eat it right there and right then. So you, you plan big, Right? You plan big. You think, okay, let's get the whole family together. And if you've got a small family, like, hey, let's invite the, the neighbors because we've got to eat this whole thing. Right? And, and the reality is that there's, there, there is a joy that comes when we uh, gather together. There's an energy and a power in worshiping in community. Right? Uh, how many of you love watching a great movie all by yourself? Right? It's funny, you laugh. You realize you're all by yourself, and it's just kind of, it's just not the same, right? It's just more fun with somebody. That's the way it is with worship, right? There's something about rejoicing in God together. In fact, in the, in the, in the uh, celebration, the, the Feast of Booths, seven-day thing where they go camping together, and he commands them in verse 40, you shall take the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and they, they're to build a hut, a little tent to sleep in for seven days. And he commands them, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And they hang out as a group, and they're to celebrate God with rejoicing. Uh, and, and really, more is merrier. Worship works better, and is, just has a new energy when there are more of us, right? when there's more of us. Third principle, last principle. Uh, uh, they were to make worship, I don't know how else to put this, but uh, they were to make worship hands-on. 
There's basically three, at least three ways that they did this. Um, and, and again, uh, before we talk about the three ways, let me just reemphasize the purpose of all this. Remember, the purpose is worship. Now, of course, you could do these things I'm going to talk about. We, they, they, you could go through these motions and not worship. And uh, for me, growing up, I was very resistant of like liturgical things because I saw uh, dead churches practicing them with no real heart of worship. So I decided the fault was the practices. Uh, but the fault is not the practices. The fault, fault is the people who are not intentional about engaging in those activities. And certainly Israel did the same thing. Eventually these became empty practices that were heartless and without worship. And God finally said, I hate them. Quit bringing these bulls to me because I hate them. But it wasn't because the practices were bad. It was, it was because their hearts were empty. Their hearts were far from God. But for those who, who remember the purpose to celebrate and remember God's great salvation, that's the purpose, right? Worshiping is ultimately remembering God's great deeds in saving us and recounting them and retelling them and reaffirming them and acknowledging them. And the second great purpose is acknowledging that God is the great provider and carer of us. Right? God is the one that we need and the only one. So we acknowledge his, uh, his sovereign power and care and grace and we acknowledge our need for his salvation and we exalt him as the one who saves us. Right? That's the purpose. So keep that purpose in mind as we talk about some of the ways that they made it hands-on and that we perhaps can as well. First off, they had meals with meaning. Meals with meaning, right? Uh, and the best example of this is, is the Passover, uh, full of symbolism, right? And they, uh, they kind of elaborated it and, and, and built on it. So they brought this lamb and ate it, but then there are also herbs and and salt water and all kinds of things that represented uh, the difficult journey of, of Israel when they were in slavery and as God brought them out, as God delivered them. Right? So they shared these meals together with great meaning and purpose. Uh, another great one was unleavened bread. Uh, on the 15th day of the same month, so the day right after Passover, the very next day, for seven days you shall eat only unleavened bread. Uh, so every day mom cooks these nice big loaf of, of bread. And then on this day, we get tortillas. And, and the little three-year-old's like, Mom, what happened? Your, your, your bread got ran over by a steamroller. Right? What did you do to it? Right? It's different. And for seven days, they eat tortillas, flat, unleavened bread. Right? It changes it up. And it's an opportunity to what? To tell the story. To explain why... Well, yeah, back when our ancestors were leaving Egypt, they had to leave so fast, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. Because God, when he worked, he worked instantly. I mean, it took a long time getting up to that. But when it was time, it was tortillas. Because <laughs> there wasn't time to make real bread. So we're going to celebrate for seven days, remembering God's salvation. Um, how can we do this? You know, there are a lot of ways that I think we can, we can have meals with meaning. And of course, the, the, the most obvious one is the Lord's Supper. Right? That is for us a meal with meaning. Um, and, and it's a symbol, uh, and we'll talk about symbols in a minute, but it's this breaking of bread, this blood-red juice that are reminders of Jesus' death for us. Um, 
And I think Jesus, you know, it says, uh, both Jesus and, and, and in the, uh, later, the church emphasized that as often as you eat and drink, you are to do what? Remember Jesus' death. Right? And we read that now to say, well, as long as you eat and drink and participate in the Lord's Supper, you are to remember. But I don't really think that was God's or Jesus' purpose. I think he, he took the most common part of their everyday meal and he took, he took this bread and this wine, which they drink at every meal, and he, he broke the bread because he wanted it to be a trigger that every time they sat down at the table and they broke bread and they gave thanks, they would remember what? The body and blood of Jesus, right? So it wasn't just for some uh, churchy thing, but at home, right? It was an opportunity for parents to, and, and for families to have a meal with meaning, Right? Um, uh, will sticky rice work? I think so, right? I think sticky rice would work. I'm not sure about spaghetti, however. Right? So there are limits, but you know, think about how can we make our meals more meaningful, more about telling the story of our salvation. Um, Lent practices. You know, we talk a lot about Lent, and in some traditions and some churches, they give up things for Lent, which is okay. But I, I would suggest instead of giving up something for Lent, just change it up for Lent. Like, I don't know. Like, for me, having steak every day for Lent would be good. And talk about, you know, offering those, those burnt offerings. I think that would be, let's, let's do that one, right? Uh, it may take some creativity, but how can you use your food and your eating practices and tie that into some of the great things that we celebrate? Uh, one of the ways we do that here as a church is that we celebrate Good Friday through a Seder dinner. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to come. It's, it's a little expensive, a couple hundred baht a person, but it's a great opportunity to experience a Passover meal and to see the symbolism and, and the meaning of this meal that they shared together. Uh, we do this with Thanksgiving, right? Uh, we, 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 we eat a big meal and we, rem- we remember God's abundant provision. Right? So those are meals with meaning. Um, second thing, uh, the power of symbols. Throughout these, uh, these events, there were some very powerful symbols that were to remind them. Uh, I talked about the first fruits and I just... I just love this picture. Can you imagine, you know, dad's out there harvesting and he, he brings in this big sheaf of grain, barley. He says, okay, family, we're going off to the temple. And he's got this, this bundle of barley and he walks off with his family to the temple and they get there. And what do they do? They wave it before the Lord. And kids watch as like this big bundle of grain, right? And it's a symbol. It's a symbol of giving everything that God has has come from him and giving back to him a portion of what God has blessed them with, right? It's a great picture. Uh, in atonement, they, they fasted. Also a great picture and symbol of the sorrow and grief and contrition over sin. Right? They were to afflict themselves. Uh, can you imagine corporately, as the, as the people of Israel gathered, and they all fasted, and they all, in a sense, grieved and mourned over the sin of their nation. But at the end of the day, as the as the priest went in and he offered blood atonement and he came out and they knew the fast was over and, and their sins had been cleansed. Right? Powerful symbols. Um, you know, we may not come from a tradition where we, 
where, where the church used a lot of art and symbols, but, I'm, but we want to do that more. I'm thankful for the work that Kimberly does with the Lent readings and with the cross. And there's some great symbols there, right? And, and maybe it's good to take after the service or before you bring your kids up and let them see that hammer and those nails, right? Engage with those symbols because they will make uh, our worship more real and significant. Uh, we use things like uh, Advent, Nativity, and Advent calendars, right? Symbols that help us remember. Lastly, uh, and I think this is the most significant, a lot of what they did was about reliving the story. Reliving the story. So it wasn't enough just to read it. They had to, at some level, act it out. Recreate it. And that was ultimately the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a crazy ceremony. And it's, it's like, I, like, I kind of miss this one. I think this would be fun. They would go out and they'd gather trees and twigs and branches and they would build a little hut in their backyard. And they would go out there and they would live in that hut for seven days. And the kids are loving this. Mom, maybe not so much, right? They are camping out for seven days. Why did they do that? Well, they were reenacting the Exodus. Right? They were saying, this is what happened when God brought the, saved us. He brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery. And for 40 years, they lived in huts like this as God brought them to the promised land. Right? Uh, we don't celebrate this one for maybe several reasons. Um, one, because our exodus was different. Secondly, because we have not yet entered our promised land. Right? We are still in journey. Um, uh, and there may be other reasons. Um, but the idea is, how can we celebrate by entering more into the story? Like Easter, we, you know, we do a sunrise service sometimes. Why? So we can go out there and reenact what it meant to go out in those dark early uh, morning Hours to see the dawn rise on the world really truly for the first time when Jesus rose again. Um, things like Seder dinners and Christmas plays and living nativities are ways for us to enter into the story. Bottom line, uh, worship like this takes some effort and creativity. Um, but I would encourage you to think outside the box, right? How can we... Uh, make our meals more meaningful? How can we uh, increase the symbols that we place around us to help us remember? Uh, How can we um, enter into the story more and make it more real for ourselves and our kids? Again, not as empty activities or as rituals that lose meaning, but as worship, right? As ways to remember what God has done for us. He has saved us. And he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.